Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. You have one message. First message. Hi, Luke. It's Haley. Just, you know, calling to give my feedback on an episode. What's new? Love the Larry Hinkin interview. So great. Love learning more about John Hughes and the production of the movie and Larry flying out to Chicago. And similarly, that's like, I believe that that's one of the best movies of all time. I think you're totally in the right camp with that. But just like one or two quick little things I think you and I should discuss. Number one, the fact that you haven't seen Rescuers Down Under and the fact that you don't care to see it and you don't feel bad about that, like, I think you need to check your heart. It is a fantastic movie. It's charming. It's heartwarming. I would argue that it's underrated. So I think we need to schedule a viewing. And number two, I think we did not give attention to arguably one of the most historic and, like, world changing, life-changing events that happened 30 years ago last week. I'll let you figure out what that is and see if you can rectify this situation because, I don't know, I think some pretty big stuff happened, at least here in Houston, 30 years ago last week. I I, I celebrated it this year. I, I think some others did. We'll talk about it soon. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Message erased. No remaining messages. From Mill You Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 2, Episode 46, Improv and the Other Chris Columbus. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, November 24, 1990. Welcome, friends, to another episode of 30 Pop. It is a joy, as always, to have you with me as we reminisce together on some of the most nostalgic and cringy moments of our collective past. I'll be honest, as we draw near the end of 1990 in our weekly reminiscence, I'm finding an increasing amount more nostalgia than cringe, and I'm not complaining. This week, that's especially true, as this was Thanksgiving week in 1990 a holiday which was far less conflicting for my then-recently-turned 11-year-old worldview. A time when it was still possible to believe the narrative that made heroes of pilgrims and grateful beneficiaries at best or uneducated villainous monsters at worst of indigenous Americans. Now, at 41, it's easy to recognize that colonial subjugation is always bad, but 30 years ago, I could just gorge myself conviction-free in all the tastiest food my extended family could prepare without a single notion of the problematic origins of our feast. Even while my family yelled at the TV watching their beloved hometown Dallas Cowboys defeat the now formerly wildly inappropriately named football team from Washington. But that's a rant for another time. Being a holiday week back then simply meant no school and that Christmas was getting closer and closer. It also meant the second blockbuster season of the year was kicking off. But before we talk movies, let's look at some of the other pop culture news for that week. 
In television, we saw the end of another kid series when on November 19th, the final episode aired of Chippendale Rescue Rangers, a cartoon I never watched, but the theme song for which it feels like I've known since birth. This was one of three series spun off the success of Disney's DuckTales, which featured a similarly unforgettable theme song composed by the same songwriter, in fact. The other two series that spun off were Tailspin, which I didn't watch, and Darkwing Duck, which I think I loved. They were packaged together along with a rotating cast of a few other shows in a two-hour programming block on the Disney Channel called The Disney Afternoon. I'm actually a little surprised Chippendale Rescue Rangers wasn't on my radar more as a kid. Chip's character was modeled after Indiana Jones, who I basically worshipped, and Dale after Thomas Sullivan Magnum III, Tom Selleck's character on Magnum P.I. I'm positive that had the show been described to me in that way when it released in the spring of 1989, I'd have been all in from day one. Also in TV news, for those of you with a deep fondness for sports entertainment, on November 22, 1990, Six foot, ten inch, twenty five year old Houston native Mark Calloway made his debut in the World Wrestling Federation as the horror themed supernatural character The Undertaker, thus beginning a career that spanned three full decades and was only officially put to rest a couple days ago as of this recording. I have enough devout wrestling fans in my life, and I've played enough video games to know The Undertaker is a legend in the wrestling universe, and he had a tremendous impact on the sport, or whatever it is. Anyway, it probably goes without saying, but the number one album on the Billboard charts for the third consecutive week in 1990 was the debut album from Vanilla Ice to the Extreme. And for the third and final week, Mariah Carey had the number one single with Love Takes Time. Candyman was once again at the top of the hot rap chart with Knockin' Boots. The new top song on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart 30 years ago this week was Misunderstanding by New Jack Swing artist Al B. Sure. I remember hearing his name quite a bit as a kid, but I have no memory of this song whatsoever. And if I'm honest, while I am a longtime lover of the genre, after giving it a listen, this song just did nothing for me. The same can be said, although perhaps more emphatically, about the new number one song on the Hot Country chart, KT Oslin's Come Next Monday. Come next Monday, gonna bed early. I won't talk Sugar, honey. Come next Monday, I'm gonna get a bus bomb. 
I made the mistake of watching the music video for this one, and while the song was mediocre at best, the video was just so dumb. I included a link in the show notes so you can make the same mistake I did. Check it out. It's bad. In theaters this week in 1990, we had a few new releases, two sequels, and one award-winning directorial debut. Each of the films released earlier in the week so as to really capitalize on the holiday weekend, but even still, none of them could claim the top spot at the box office. One of those releases was the sci-fi action horror sequel to 1987's Predator. This one set in the far distant future. Los Angeles, 1997. It's the hottest summer on record. Pollution is choking the city. The gangs control the streets. It has not been a nice day! As bad as things are, they're about to get worse. Much worse. Whoever killed him is going to pay. I'm going to finish it. It has almost no weight. But it cuts like steel. Incredible. Whoever did this took out four men armed with machine guns by hand. You don't know what you're dealing with. Other world life forms drawn by heat and conflict. He's on safari. Lions. Tigers. The bears. Oh my. Danny Glover. Gary Busey. Ruben Blades. Maria Conchita Alonso. Bill Paxton. Predator 2. He's in town with a few days to kill this Thanksgiving. This movie made a fair amount of money at the box office, making back about twice what it cost to produce, but only just over half of what its predecessor made. Critics didn't love it, but they warmed up to it over time, and it eventually became a cult classic and a franchise staple. The other sequel that released on November 21st, 1990, was the follow-up to another 1987 classic, but one with far more laughs and far less machismo than Predator. Three men and a baby. Touchstone Pictures presents Tom Selleck. We are building an office for 12,000 people. You can't put a bathroom on every other floor. What if they don't go before they come to work? Steve Gutenberg. What are you doing in there? Uh, we're doing the laundry. I'm hungry. Hi. And Ted Danson. I loved your last commercial. The uh, laxative one. You were hysterical. You know, a lot of people say that when they watch it, that they really believe that I was constipated. We all live together. Okay. They're a modern family. While we think of ourselves as progressive, this is the most unique family environment. What a crock. Hey, hey, where did you hear that expression? What a crock. What? What'd I do? Touchstone Pictures presents Tom Selleck. Kiss me! Steve Gutenberg. I've been thinking about us a lot lately. There. And Ted Danson. Where's Jack? He's making a move. Hey, You're on! Three men and a little lady. <laughs> you look very beautiful. I look like a dork. It's been ages since I've seen either of these movies, but I do remember enjoying them quite a bit. But as great as they were, they couldn't possibly compare with the third film to open in theaters on November 21st. 
It was nominated for 12 Academy Awards, winning seven of them, including Best Picture and Best Director for its lead actor's directorial debut, Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves. This is where I would normally play the audio for the trailer, but the trailer for this particular film, which also won Best Cinematography, relies very heavily on visual elements. The audio for the trailer is just kind of boring. Nevertheless, the film is amazing which makes it especially interesting that it almost didn't get made. According to the Wikipedia article on Dances with Wolves, originally written as a spec script by Michael Blake, it went unsold in the mid-1980s. However, Kevin Costner had starred in Blake's only previous film, Stacy's Nights from 1983, and encouraged Blake in early 1986 to turn the Western screenplay into a novel to improve its chances of being produced. The novel was rejected by numerous publishers, but finally was published in paperback in 1988. The rights were purchased by Costner, with an eye on directing it. Costner and his producing partner, Jim Wilson, had difficulty in raising money for the film. The project was turned down by several studios due to the Western genre no longer being as popular as it was during the 1980s, following the disastrous box office performance of Heaven's Gate in 1980, as well as the length of the script. After the project languished at both Nelson Entertainment and Island Pictures due to budget reasons, Costner and Wilson enlisted producer Jake Ebers to manage foreign rights in several countries for Costner to retain final cut rights. The two then made a deal with Orion Pictures in which the studio would distribute the film in North America. Defying expectations, Dances with Wolves proved instantly popular, eventually earning great critical acclaim, making $184 million in the U.S. box office, and $424 million in total worldwide. Thanks again to Wikipedia for that. Spectacular as it was, the film received mixed reviews from Native American audiences. Many believe the film honored the heritage and story of Native Americans, even going so far as to adopt Kevin Costner as an honorary member of the Sioux Nation. Many others were critical of its imperfect use of the Lakota language and considered it another example and perpetuator of white saviorism. Either way, the movie surprised everyone with its massive impact. But, huge as it may have been, it did not hold the number one spot at the box office its opening weekend. As I mentioned last week, that spot was reserved once again for the holiday classic, Home Alone. You guys give up, or you're thirsty for more? Last week I had the great pleasure of sharing the first half of my conversation with actor Larry Hankin about his experience working on Home Alone and the very weird moments that accompany that experience. But Home Alone is only one of many major projects that Mr. Hankin has been a part of over the years. I want to pick up now with the second half of our conversation. It's amazing. I love I love the movie. I love this scene in particular. You've also been a part of a number of other projects that I love just as much. So you've been on Seinfeld. You were on, let me look at you. I'm pulling up your IMDb here. I just luck out on these, these, you know, little things that I just, you know, explode me out there yeah. for no uh, reason, except the, the writing and the, the character and the fact that I, I I'm dyslexic and they're generally short scenes where I can totally be there mm-hmm. now and I don't have to worry about lines or anything because they're just small parts. They're great. I mean, you know, when you give me a, like a monologue, then I just, it all goes 
falls apart. Yeah. That's my dyslexia. You know, just... you had recurring role on Friends, which is amazing. In '90 alone, you were you had Pretty Woman. You had Death Warrant, which also just turned 30. We've talked about on the show. Oh man, I love that movie. Well, I love my part in it. It was just that big close up of the nose right yeah. before they burned me up. I just love that. I love death scenes. I've died in about three or four. I had dead death scenes in three or four movies. That's amazing. So we also mentioned, I mentioned you were in planes, trains, and automobiles. So yeah. I would love to hear wow. you talk about the difference in John Hughes as a director and Chris Columbus as a director. What was that? Like, how would you compare their sort of style of directing? Or did you have enough time with them to really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, and they were both. For me, they're they're very great roles because of they were written by John Hughes. It was a John, two John Hughes movies, so yeah. that alone are very memorable. And two of the best Christmas movies in, in my mind of all time. Yeah, I mean, but you know, um, that that one I keep on forgetting the name of the one that I mentioned before about the lunchroom or the the, the, mm -hmm. the breakfast the gym, club. the Breakfast Club. No, that to me is. Uh, an iconic movie and trains, planes, and automobiles is to me one of the funniest movies yes. ever. But his oeuvre, his body of work, John Hughes, it's just amazing. He he never missed. It just what was cool. That's true. Uh, so uh, what we were talking about? We were talking about one of the movies um, was um, the Christopher Columbus. Or no, which so Chris Columbus directed. Home oh, direct, Alone, directing with and then John, John Hughes, Hughes with planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, I'm trying to nail it down. Well, Christopher Columbus is just a regular guy. He's not moody at all. He's just a normal human being who happens to be a very funny director. Very, he's not in the class of John Hughes yet, but he's right up there. I mean, yeah. John Hughes made a good choice and saying, you know, this is for you, Chris. Uh, so, but John. Hughes, and I'll tell you a little story about time about how, the the genius of John Hughes because I think he's a genius, and I don't think I'm sorry, Chris. I, I you're really great. I don't know if you're a genius. I don't know if you're a genius, but I do know that John Hughes. I would be shocked if he heard this episode. So <laughs> he's probably never going to know. <laughs> okay, but but anyway, um, so he's a normal guy, and he gives normal. Well. The reason I stop is great directors don't direct. They don't give directions. Mm. I, I, John Houston is the greatest director I've ever worked with. Mm. Never gave me a direction. And all the other really great directors, like John Hughes, never directed me. Except, for where, you know, when he wanted me to piss in the sink. Right. But that wasn't a direction that said, you you want to piss in the sink? Yeah, I want to film it. That's it. That was the direction. You know? right. All right, here, piss in this sink here because of the camera. That's about the only direction I ever got from John Hughes. Nor did he direct anybody else. I mean, he just watches, and maybe he'll make an adjustment. And if there's a rehearsal, you know, that's off camera. That's, you know, maybe he'll give a little, you know, oh, why don't you try this? You know, try stuff. But that was it. So he, Chris never directed me and neither did Chris uh, and neither did John Hughes. But but Chris was a normal guy. He was just like a, a director, like you uh, are telling me what we're going to talk about or whatever. It It's just conversation. Mm -hmm. John Hughes, you were very aware that this guy, there's more going on in his mind right now than just him talking to you. Mm. He's got pictures and 
you know, a, a lot of things. Uh, uh, Don Siegel. Don Siegel was like John Hughes. Mm. Don Siegel directed Escape from Alcatraz. Now, when he was discussing something with you, like because of this and this and this, you could see he had other, you know, challenges in his mind when he was trying to say where he wanted you or what. You know, and you just sit this stood there and listened because there was things going on. You had no idea why he was doing this. Yeah. And you don't question. Him. So it, normal and not normal. That, that That's the only difference. I don't think he was directing me uh, or directing the movie any different than, you know, he's got two shot, one shot, n- nothing special. Um, I've been on director on films because they they all depend mainly on, on the cinematographer, you know, where to put the camera. Mm-hmm. They'll discuss it with them, but generally the cinematographer will generally win out unless the director has something specifically in mind. No, I need the shot here because later on we're going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's the... The only only difference in style. The reason that I say John Hughes is a genius, among other geniuses, I mean, this town is filled more than any other place I get. As far as movie goes, I don't know. You know, probably in Silicon Valley, there's a lot. Right. Too, like, totally different. Right. Okay. So what he did was, what John Hughes did was, when we shot Doobie, the uh, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, mm-hmm. I was driving the cab. Now, the first thing I got to tell you is that cab, we never drove anywhere. That cab was in a, uh, on a soundstage, mm-hmm. you know, in, 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 uh, uh, in Chicago somewhere, you know, in a movie mm-hmm. unit. So what, what I saw when I was driving the, the cab is it was in a dark soundstage, you know, one of these airplane hangar type soundstage. Mm-hmm. So everything was dark. And then they had crew guys dressed in black, like Chinese, like Japanese no theater Mm. with props of branches running by or lights running by. Really? And then they green screened it or something. I don't know. But that cab was up on on, on, uh, uh, milk crates on the axles. There was no wheels on it. It was just a a shell of a cab. But the inside was un- incredible. The, the, the design of that, whoever did the inside, I just got Doobie's character just from looking at how the, all the stuff that Doobie had pasted, some set designer had pasted all over. It's incredible. So there was a, now there's a two incredibly funny people, man. John Candy and Steve Martin are in the back seat. I'm in the front seat. We're in there and we're doing the scene. Okay, okay everybody, you know, there's a camera. I guess in the front, there's a camera on the back and them and the camera on me. So I think like two, at least two or three cameras. And and John Hughes is sitting on a on an apple box, which is kind of like a milk crate mm-hmm. um, outside of the cab on the on the front driver's side. So on the driver's you know passenger seat side, and he's sitting outside and he's directing. This he really directs. But let me tell you how he was directing and why. What he did was he said, do the scene. Okay, so we do the scene. Blah, 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 blah. Cut. Okay, let's get coverage on him. Blah, 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 blah. Coverage on you, Larry. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to improvise this scene. Okay? So, and now he's directing. 
but he's directing like nothing I've ever been in. He goes, okay, uh, John, uh, John and Steve, no, John and Larry, uh, you say the words in the script. Steve, you, you improvise. Okay, try it. Steve improvised. Now, Steve Martin can improvise, man. This guy is so free. Yeah. <laughs> the inside of his head is like as big as the sound stage. So he uh, he does that. Okay, all right. Uh, Steve, Larry, you do the uh, lines. John, you improvise. Okay. John Candy. <laughs> Incredible. All right. Steve, John, you say the scene, and Larry, you improvise. You know, and I try to keep up, man. I don't know. I did what I I did my best. You know, right. So I can say. Okay. Okay. Now what we're going to do is we're going to improvise the whole scene. Okay, everybody, just uh, just uh, okay. Uh, Larry, you start. Okay, go. So now this little scene, which I think can't be more than three pages, it's probably two pages long, written. Uh, we the whole day we're there, and this is what John did the whole day. About halfway through, uh, after lunch, we just picked up, and then uh, John Hughes disappeared, and he went somewhere. And now there's a huge, I saw like it's an airplane hangar. So there's only uh, stairs on the side of the wall, going up on the side of the wall, way up into a little room, way up there. God knows what that was built for. I have no idea. He went up there and he says, I'm in this little room up, up there, you know, look up. We all look up. Oh, wow. Can you see that? Wow. So this is the TV room. So I'm, I'm watching you on TV and there was a microphone in the cab so we could hear his voice. And I, and he says, I can see you cause I'm watching the, through the cameras, but you can't see me. So just, uh, you know, we'll just do it. We'll keep on doing it, but that, here's where I am. Okay. Now, the, the first thing is all this improvisation that's going on before he went up there. Not only did he have us improvising and blah, 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 and that he had memorized the script, which is, you know, two, three pages, no biggie. But he had memorized the three hours that we were just free improvising mm. just by sitting outside because he would go like, no, no, John, when you were in, no, no, uh, 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 Steve, when you were improvising, Larry said that, and, and then you said this. And he would just say what Steve had said maybe 20 minutes ago. Mm. So, you know, you said that, and then he said that. So, okay, just try that. Just do that part. And he would do that with each one of us. He'd say, no, you know, John, no, you, when, he, when he said that, you said this. And, and there was no notes. He wasn't looking down. Right. He said, you, you said this. And then he goes, he had memorized everything we were saying for the entire three hours when he was downstairs next to us. And he was even doing that upstairs. He said, just do it again. Only, only, oh, he would, then he'd go, no. Okay. So you two say this, then Larry, you, you just say this. And it was a combination of what I had said in two other improvs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then he goes, okay, everybody's dismissed. And we go home and, and all three of us went, holy cow, that was amazing. You know, and I'm thinking not only was John amazing, yes, it was amazing, but these two guys were just so free, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, that's you know, I, I improvised for ten years. I was in Second City. I was in the committee. You really? know, wow, okay, uh, we were big, you know, and uh, but 
to, to just because it's improvisation, first of all, it's process, it's learning, there's a there's a form to it, but also there's there's process, there's practice, it's a muscle, you know. Mm -hmm. All art is a muscle. The more you do it, the better you get, just mm -hmm. like a muscle. And I was doing it every night for 10 years, man. When I got off there, I could step on any set and do anything, but it goes away. It atrophies, just like mm. stop exercising. Guys hadn't improvised, I guess, in years. I mean, they were actors now. They were writers. Just, just like they've been improvising for 10 years, like they never left improv whatever. That's incredible. So that's that's my experience. That's the, the experience I remember. All right. Cut two. Here's the finish of the story. Okay. Ta-da! Dakota. I don't know. Ten years later? Fifteen years later? I don't know. I'd say five years ago. I don't know how long that is. Five years ago. Okay. Since. Okay. I'm in Greenblatt's, a delicatessen. And who's sitting a couple of seats away from me? Christopher Columbus and his family. His wife and his two kids, or I don't know, there's two other people there. And he goes, hey, Larry. And he goes, Christopher Columbus. I didn't even recognize him. I didn't yeah. remember him. I only met him that, you know, that one time. Yeah. Oh, oh, Chris, how you doing? And I got up. I was sitting with two friends. I immediately got up and I ran over to the table. I said, Christopher Columbus. Oh, God. Oh, and he introduced me. Yeah, this is my wife. This is my kid. We were just talking about, hey, it was great working with you. Uh, hi, you know, those are my friends down there. And he said, yeah, it was great working with you. And by the way, he said to me, yeah, I saw the movie and it was really funny. I go, yeah, yeah, the, the movie, well, you directed it. Of course you're going to say it's funny. He said, no, 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 the film's short. What film's short? He said, you know, John, the, the one that John Hughes shot with you guys, you, you and Steve and John Candy. You know, when you were Doobie, there's a film short? What film short? He said, you haven't seen the movie? I go, no, where did you see this movie? He said, well, John had a birthday one, one year and he invited everybody over to his house. He lives in Chicago. I was in Chicago. He invited me over and he and as a, a part of the party, he showed this film short of, of Doobie driving Steve and John in the cab to the motel. It's a 10 minute film short. That was the improv that he was. That's what John Hughes was doing the entire time. He said, well, I got these three guys here. I could get a great film short out of this. <laughs> I guess he did. And he said, and I said, well, what was it about? He said, well, you were driving. It was just you were talking about kind of the stuff that was in the movie, but it was totally different. You know, it wasn't the scene. Have you seen it uh, now? No. So I said, where is it? I got to see this. You know, now John is dead, of course, John yeah. Candy and John Hughes. Mm -hmm. I said, so, you know, well, where is it? He said, well, I've never seen it again. They, he showed it once uh, and I've never seen it. I don't, I don't know. That's and incredible. I said, God, that must be, wow. I don't know where that movie is. And I guess his wife is still alive, John Yu's wife. I'd love to, I've never got around to calling her. Mm. I would love to do that. But it must be an amazing movie because those two guys were at the top of their game. Man. Yeah. I hope I was. I was keeping up. He didn't cut me out. Well, yeah. I mean, you were you were a part of a lot of projects around that time. Real quick, before we wrap up, like I said, Home Alone is one of my, if not my very favorite movie, it's top three for me. It is my very favorite Christmas movie. And Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is on that list yeah, as well. Uh, John Hughes knows how to direct funny, man. I tell yeah. you. And you said and, you've and only seen it two or three times? Turns. What? You said you've only seen the movie two or three times? 
Yeah, but each time I'm blown away by something new. It's just I don't have time. I'm so obsessed with my own getting it out of my head and writing. I'm either, you know, I'm always creating something. I'm Mm -hmm. either painting or I'm writing something. But John Hughes, as a writer, not only as a a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. but his writing is just, you know, spot on. It's so great. And I've, it's funny, I've, you know, I I produce a lot of podcasts and I've thought, for years, I've thought, you know, one of these days I'm going to start a podcast that is just about Home Alone because I think it's a perfect film. Wow. Like between the writing and the directing, I think it's a perfect film. And I would love to just really like do a deep dive and explore that for people because it's just so masterfully made. Wow. Anyway, thank you so much for your time. I would love to have you on again down the road. I may reach yeah, out to you again. Yeah, man, so. anytime. Awesome. Yeah, I like talking. Okay, thank you, Luke. I really appreciate it. I Absolutely. Really All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. Take it easy, man. Bye. Huge, huge thanks to Leary for being a part of this and last week's episodes. It was just so much fun to get that much more time with him than I expected. I hope you'll join me again next week as I sit down with the actor who played another memorable character in Home Alone. I promise you don't want to miss it. Until then, in the words of Kicking Bird, of all the trails in this life, there are some that matter most. It is the trail of a true human being. I think you are on this trail, and it is good to see. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>